Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of My on Mondays. The idea for this podcast was born during the height of the pandemic, when each of us shut in our own bubbles were searching for meaningful ways to connect with one another. Over the months and now years since its inception, the project has grown in subject matter and scope, and it's been a real pleasure to collaborate with the many artists, activists, and creative folk who have participated in this experimental audio voyage. For this centenary episode, we thought it fitting to reshare an episode from one of our core contributors and collaborators, Heidi Cray, whose book, Twelve Lifetimes, A Century Cycle, will be released this coming December 1st through Modern Mythographer. Heidi is a playwright and writer across disciplines. Her work examines the connection between brain and body, seeking empathy with fractured characters. She pulls myth, metaphor, and monsters together to attempt connections across difference. Her plays, including Unwind, Hindsight is 2020, See in the Dark, How to Hide Your Monster, New Eden, Me and My Shadow, Kilgore, as well as co-devised plays, plays for young audiences, one-acts, and short plays, have been presented nationally and internationally. Her play for young audiences, Wolf Slash Girl, will have its university premiere production at Boise State University on February 8th. If you haven't already, I encourage you to listen to her other pieces in our archives and have a look at her website to find out more about her work, including her powerful Century series from which today's piece comes. The title is My History of Falling. What the heck is a century? 100 years, 100 thoughts, 100 images. In his century essay, Advent Manifesto, Does My Soul Still Sing?, John Paul Lederach notes that the Desert Fathers and other ascetics wrote down their thoughts in this numbered way, in a contemplative approach, like prayer on paper. That means this form may be as old as the 3rd century AD, perhaps older, Each idea is broken up by numbers, one to 100. Every new thought, new idea, new image gets a new number. The ideas, thoughts, images can connect, but that's not necessary. I've always loved lists. The century can be a way to explore what we remember and notice about our lives, but also what's going on in China, in the Ukraine, Antarctica, in the early 21st century, as well as the 19th century, 12th century, when the universe was starting to form, or the Earth, into the far-off or not-so-far-off future 
when the earth is no longer inhabitable. The following is from my book in progress, 12 Lifetimes, A Century Cycle. Thanks for listening. My History of Falling 1. I threw up twice from the 100-plus degree heat and cookie dough ice cream at the Hawks Minor League Stadium, once outside the driver's seat, then a big emptying out at home. 2. Fingers crammed up my throat. I was back in the bulimia years. 3. My brother confessed he distanced himself from me for a decade since the family week conference at Remuda. 4. I didn't tell him those were the years I needed him most. 5. I didn't think I'd make it to 30. I wanted to die young. 6. Here I am on borrowed time. What am I doing with my extra years? 7. I asked the doctor if I was going blind. He said it was just stress. 8. After the three-hour loadout, I couldn't walk from numbing pain. The ER doctor accused me of faking for pills. 9. He pointed to my thick, bundled psychiatric history on file as proof and scolded me away after midnight. 10. Two of my co-workers behind me, one my supervising assistant technical director, listened to my history thrown in my face at St. Al's, where they drove me after the trucks rolled out from the loading docks. 11. We never discussed what the doctor said, but I had to fight to get that ER visit paid for by workman's comp. 12. I never mentioned how my left side shuts down periodically since that night. 13. In an introductory psychology class, my professor called schizoaffective disorder the most debilitating disorder in the DSM. 14. She couldn't have known the impact of that lecture on me, what I decided that must mean about me. 15. How many diagnoses can you put on a kid? 16. Major depression, eating disorder, borderline personality disorder, schizoaffective disorder, panic disorder. 17. Overmedicated my first college class, I drooled in my seat, trying to keep the saliva inside, trying to absorb everything coming at me from the intro to theater lectures, anything. 18. I was on eight medications at their highest dosages, between tapering some down, flexing some up, a guinea pig for new drugs and different combinations, many hot off the release from Big Pharma's market. 19. Abilify, Effexor, Clonazepam, Trazodone, Risperidol, Seroquel, Lorazepam, Celexa, Serafem, Zyprexa, Geodon, Olanzapine, I can't remember all the names. 20. Painting in my parents' kitchen all winter, I try to find rhythm in brush strokes within my self-prescribed art therapy regimen, instead of my first year in college on the other side of the country where I'd planned to be. 21. Mom said I told her I was scared. The voices were saying I should kill her, she said. I don't remember any of this. 22. That was when I was afraid to sleep alone. 
begged her to stay with me in bed, and she did until I dozed off with heavy tranquilizers. Twenty-three. Once she startled me awake with her own half-yell. I'd been staring at her asleep with eyes open. Twenty-four. I held Wanyo and Molly sitting between cat and dog when terror visions shocked me off the couch, their snapped necks in my hands. Twenty-five. I was afraid of the dark. Twenty-six. I was afraid of mirrors. Twenty-seven. I was afraid of airports. Twenty-eight. I was afraid of deep water. Twenty-nine. I was afraid to drive. Thirty. I was afraid to leave the house. Thirty-one. I was afraid to open my mouth. Thirty-two. I was afraid to close my eyes. Thirty-three. I was afraid to show my eyes. Thirty-four. I forgot how to read. Thirty-five. I forgot how to drive. Thirty-six. I forgot how to sleep. Thirty-seven. I forgot how to leave the bed. Thirty-eight. I was eighteen. Thirty-nine. At the intake room of the Seattle Psychiatric Hospital preparing my admission, the institution's insides scared me more than my sickness. Forty. In the lobby, a woman yelled in a fit to get her phone call. In the next room, a group of men shouted. Around me, the walls yellowed, the carpets degraded. Forty-one. All at once, I told the admitting doctor I was no longer suicidal, that after my long talk with mom on the plane from Phoenix to SeaTac, I was doing better, wanted to, planned to do better. 42. He believed me, even if I didn't believe myself. They couldn't keep me there if I didn't claim to be at risk. 43. I spent that Thanksgiving in terror with family, surrounded by food, no rules, no daily schedule. I flew home to Boise with mom, bewildered, no plan, no ideas for what's next. 44. Had my therapist not found the psych ward close to family, they would have kept me in Wickenburg or sent me to the Phoenix Hospital, then back to Remuda, then a group home, then repeat the cycle like the others I knew there, sick for life, in the system for life. 45. I slipped through their cracks. 46. In the Eating Disorder Treatment Center, a fellow resident said, This wasn't my future. I wouldn't keep cycling back there. She could see it. She pointed to my writing in a journal as evidence. 47. At Remuda's Family Week, they got residents and their visitors to unload on each other in a performance of tears, hurt, accusations, grief unspooling. Among a few heartfelt moments at the front of the room, the other women who made it that far watched alongside their families. 48. We compared scars on the Arizona overwatered lawn, all trying to outdo each other's stories, behaviors, histories, our wild rage taken out on our skin, throats, bellies, bodies. 49. Dad's cards those months were the most consistent, mom's a close second. 50. The staff told us what we did to our bodies was a sin. 51. They prayed away our sickness, shamed, lectured it away, tried to. 52. They kept our backs to the numbers while they weighed us each week. 53. Designated smoke breaks in the enclosed area on the patio, seven a day if you rose early enough. 54. 
Half the women around me were back for their second stay, third. A few came back and back, Wickenburg their revolving door, same with the hospital in Phoenix and group homes in between. 55. Packing for Remuda, I hid the contraband pink razor with the blood-stained soap strip in a sock in my duffel bag, inside a second pair of socks tucked down deep. 56. I was sure they'd find it while the intake nurse unpacked my belongings in front of me, looking for sharps, dangers, food, medication, non-Christian media, sure they'd take it and add more consequences to the days of suicide watch already tallied. I hid it too well. 57. I never pulled it out, but I knew I could. 58. They confiscated all the CDs I brought in their jewel cases, but never found my Blood Flowers album either, hidden in plain sight in my portable Discman. 59. Halfway through my time there, my therapist arranged to get my music back to me. She said it was pointless to keep me from secular music when it was my lifeblood. I wasn't Christian, and the daily prayers, required Bible studies, and chapel time were already adding to my depression. 60. When she opened the blood flowers cover before handing it back, along with the other cases in the stack, and saw nothing inside, she looked at me with a curious face. I shrugged. Must have forgot it. 61. Been listening to that album each night in my bunk, headphones on in the dark, Robert Smith singing me to sleep between bed checks, the small rebellion keeping a fire alive in my chest. 62. Our plane ride to Phoenix, in full panic mode, I muttered to myself in crazed eyes, yelling out at turbulence. Flight attendants watched me with tense faces. My mom, my chaperone, sat in misery and shame, trying to keep me still, keep me quiet, wondering what happened to her daughter, her happy Heidi. I watched myself as though in a movie. 63. The night before Remuda, I cut up my arms and legs the most I ever had all at once. I reopened my largest burn wound with a lighter. 64. The act got me on suicide watch for three days and nights upon my arrival as the nurses had me stripped down to inspect me. 65. I knew there would be consequences. Did I want them? Was I afraid they wouldn't take me seriously? 66. I cried into the books I tried to shelve at my library job until they fired me. I spent half my lunch breaks puking out my meal. 67. If a recent high school graduate like me works for them today, I hope they try to help her. 68. All night, all night, all night, cramming down food, letting it go, three times over, until my throat burned, and I fell into bed. 69. I waited until Mom went to bed or flew to visit Dad on the weekends in Lemoore and had late-night bulimic parties with myself. 70. After my third time dropping out of public school for independent study, hanging by a thread, completing three essential classes, I heard they were calling me Crazy Heidi. 71. I still wonder if I was sick or wanted to be and good at getting what I want. 72. But still in me, the loud voices say, shut up, 
You're not good at anything. You hurt everything you touch. 73, but still in me, when I turn a corner, I'm on the floor, paralyzed by my brain waves. 74, I still wonder if my brain chemistry or the meds were hardest on my mind. 75, I don't know what it says about me if I'm not schizoaffective with a panic disorder. 76, the crackling inside the MRI tube, popping hum. They search for clues about my brain. 77, shadow people's inkjet bodies at my periphery, hulking masses, T-Rex-shaped raccoon figures, mouths drooling, lunging at walls, their teeth jagged daggers, broken glass, how they shrieked at me. 78, their four hands pulled me off the gymnasium ledge as I raced for the drop. 79, mumbling, spinning, half-screaming, twitching hard from shadow people's taunts in the tiny black box theater space. I held my head and shook to escape the noises, shadows, white lights, blood, corpses. 80, Mr. Tom walked me to the counselor's office, hand on my shoulder, worried care in his eyes, and asked her to call my mom so she could pick me up. 81, I saw a beautiful mind in the theaters and thought, there I am. 82, same when I watched Benny and June at a friend's house, surrounded by the other drama kids. One moment, my head clogged with voices, bright lights, the content too close to home. I retreated to her bedroom, and three loving girls surrounded me, hands on my torso, my hands clutching skull, trying to pull out my brain and put out the fire. 83. On the carpeted floor of the family room my senior year, I begged mom not to take me to the exorcist. 84. I burnt my arms and legs with lighters till skin bubbled, popped, smoked, blistered, transformed. 85. Razor blades, bathroom stalls, small relief between high school classes. 86. Lit cigarette end to wrist, knee, thigh, when just a small dose of hurt was the longing. 87. I never saw a doctor about my burn wounds, the ones that scorched deep where hair won't grow the ones that howl like banshee mouths that flare out with gnashing teeth like hagfish. Besides bandages and home care, besides the cocoa butter mom got me, I never got them treated. 88. At school, in rehearsal for King Lear and Bad Habits, I smelled the pus from infected arms on stage through my second-hand long sleeves, the oozing green-white leaking through soft fabric. 89. I filled notebooks, writing, I hate myself and I'm worthless until the sentiments scorched permanent on my insides, devising my future on the page in idle moments during class. 90. Killing myself became too hard a commitment, easier, less work, to wish I'd slip away in my sleep each night. 91. At 15, drowning in the bathtub seemed the easy way out, but my body never let me finish. 92, I watched my body stumble to kitchen cabinet, handfuls of pills swallowed with milk. 93, 
half the economy-sized aspirin bottle down my throat, I fell down the basement stairs into bed. 94. I didn't plan it, didn't think about how hard it was to die from aspirin. I watched my actions overhead, body moving before brain. 95. The nurse at the Syracuse ER asked why I do that to myself, such a pretty girl. 96. After pure restriction, before binging and purging, I carried up foods from the cupboards, fridge, to my bedroom, loaded mouthful after mouthful, cramming into cheeks, chewed up and spat out, into red Solo cups. 97. I threw the cups out the window into ivy and snow. 98. I didn't think my dad would find them. I didn't know what to say. 99. 50 pounds lost that first semester of ninth grade, 140 to 90 in four months. 100. I thought suffering more interesting until I found bottom. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back next Monday. Tune in.